Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Come in. Episode 531 of the podcast. This week, America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, May 11th, 2022, people. Hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody had a great Mother's Day weekend. Hope you were lucky enough to spend time with your mom or the mom in your life, wife, daughter, uh, sister, granddaughter, aunt, uncle, whatever. Whoever's the special mom in your life, hope you had a great Mother's Day weekend. I took Monday off spending time with my mom and my family, so I hope everybody had a great weekend. But we are t- it's time to get back to the Aerator Sports Podcast, and you talk about a loaded show today. We got ourselves a loaded show. Here's what we're going to talk about. I was actually going to start with some of this NIL. There's some updates since last week and blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know what? Enough NIL. Doing enough NIL. Let's do something fun. The big story of Tuesday, Tom Brady getting the bag from Fox Sports to be the face of their NFL coverage following his career. We'll talk a little bit about that, why I think the money actually makes sense. From there, we will actually do something fun I think that you guys will enjoy. Tuesday was Jim Calhoun's. 80th birthday, three-time national champion, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, Jim Calhoun, 80th birthday. I decide to give you my list of the five greatest coaches in the history of college basketball, followed by the five most overrated coaches in the history of college basketball. One of you guys that listens to this show asked me to rank my five most overrated coaches, so we will do that. And then we will wrap the show with a little Q&A. Decided to open it up. Uh, had you guys tweet in some questions, DM some questions. I got some fun questions on a Mike Leach tweet from this previous weekend on some NIL stuff. So it's going to be a wide-ranging show. Tom Brady, greatest coaches, overrated coaches, Q&A. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And what I would say about the topic of the day really quick is this. It, it, it's early to mid-May. Um, And one thing I like about this time of year, you know, we kind of get to do some stuff on this show that we wouldn't generally do if it was like the heart of football season or the heart of basketball season. And I want to do something a little bit different today because, you know, as I was prepping for the show, my initial plan was to kind of go over some of the stuff that's happened in this NIL world since the last time that we spoke. Obviously, the NCAA is planning on pushing back. The lawyers are planning on pushing back on the NCAA. And we have ourselves what is ultimately going to be just a crazy back and forth with NIL. But let's be honest. One, I've done a ton of NIL on this show. I don't want to say it's boring. I actually think it's very interesting. 
But it's not as though we're not going to get another NIL story tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And it's not as though we're not going to be talking NIL, I don't know, on Friday's show or next week or the week after that. I have a feeling we're going to be talking NIL quite a bit here going forward. And so I bring it up to very simply say that rather than just doing another NIL segment, which I've done a million of, I want to switch gears because there was something that happened in sports so big on Tuesday that it feels like I got to talk about it because all of you are seemingly interested in it. And it comes from the world of football, and it comes from the greatest football player of all time, Tom Brady. Not sure if you heard, been a busy offseason for Tom Brady, loses to the Rams in the NFC Divisional Round, retires, unretires. Then we find out that he was trying to finagle his way into an ownership stake with the Miami Dolphins. And so it's been a busy offseason for Tom Brady. But on Tuesday, we finally got clarification where Tom Brady is working and what he will be doing once his NFL career comes to an end. When his NFL career comes to an end, we found out about 9 o'clock Eastern time, many of you probably was the first thing you saw when you woke up, that Tom Brady is set to become the new face of Fox Sports' NFL draft coverage. He will be the number one announcer in the number one booth, replacing Troy Aikman, who went to ESPN to work for Monday Night Football. And it's kind of funny, right? Because Troy Aikman leaves, Joe Buck leaves with him, and you're kind of wondering, what is Fox going to do with that number one booth? Well, on Tuesday, we find out that Tom Brady, when he retires, it's not going to happen this year. It might not happen next year. But whenever Tom Brady steps away from football, he will be, in fact, the number one broadcaster in the number one booth on Fox in the NFL. Of course, if it was just about Tom Brady signing with Fox, announcing what he's doing after his playing career, well, I don't know that I'd be talking about it on this show. But the reason I am talking about it on this show is pretty straightforward. It is because about middle of the day, we got the dollar amount that Tom Brady is set to make by working as the lead broadcaster on Fox when he retires. And that number is so big, so massive, you, we, we got to talk about it. So on Tuesday, probably about, I'd say, 2 o'clock Eastern time, Andrew Marshan reports what the dollar figures, what the amounts are of Tom Brady's contract. And I need to pause, and I need to take a deep breath, because this number, which I know you've all heard, but it's going to blow you away. Tom Brady, on Tuesday, signed with Fox, a 10-year, are you ready for this? Drum roll, please. A little quiet, getting bigger. Tom Brady signed a 10-year, $375 million deal to be the face of Fox's NFL coverage. So you talk about just a crazy story with a crazy dollar figure amount attached to it. Tom Brady signed for $37 million a year for 10 years to be the face of Fox's NFL coverage, to which I say, oh my goodness. But to which I also say, I kind of get it. And so this is, you know, I think this is the fun part of doing a show like this is, you know, you get to sit back and react to some of the stuff that I know that you guys and girls care about. And trust me, I can see based on the social media response that you guys and girls care about it. And what's interesting is it feels as though most of the response is exactly the same. Most of the response is it's cool that you got Tom Brady, but it is absurd. How can you possibly pay him $37 million a year for 10 years, $375 million, when he didn't even make $375 million in his playing career. To which I say, the more that I thought about it on Tuesday, the more that it kind of makes sense. First of all, let me just say this. In the big picture, I am not in the business of telling people how to spend their money, right? Um, everybody spends money on different things. Everybody spends money on whatever. And it's not my place to say how you should spend your money. So let me give you an example. So, so, so that's why the first reason why I have no issue with Tom Brady 
getting the money that he's getting from Fox. Now, yes, I work for Fox Sports Radio. No, this has nothing to do with that. But at the end of the day, I'm just not in the business of telling people how to spend their money. So let me give you an example. Remember about three weeks ago, and it always comes back to NIL. About three weeks ago, Saturday afternoon, we all see that tweet from that Miami booster, John Ruiz. Nigel Pack has agreed to a two-year contract, $800,000 for $400,000 a year to be a spokesperson for whatever the heck my brand is. This is the biggest NIL deal on record. And we all went crazy, and we all went bananas, and probably over the next two to three days, the number one question that I got from guys and girls that listen to this show or people in the media or people in my business, well, how could you pay that much for a recruit? He's not worth it. There's no way he's going to make his money back, John Ruiz. And what I would say is, look, I think there's a different conversation between will he make his money back and is Nigel Pack worth it to Miami basketball and to John Ruiz? Now, is he really worth it? Are they really going to make $800,000 in revenue off of Nigel Pack, a very nice college basketball player, but not a great one? Probably not. And what I can certainly say is that Life Wallet, that's the name of John Ruiz's company. It just came to me while I'm doing this segment. I don't think John Ruiz's company, Life Wallet, is going to make $400,000 in profit uh, just to make back the money that they're paying Nigel Pack, let alone that they're going to make a profit from actually paying Nigel Pack that much money. But at the end of the day, who am I to tell John Ruiz how to spend his money? It's not my place to say how to spend your money. If John Ruiz wants to spend $400,000 of his hard-earned money to make Miami basketball relevant by signing a player that he thinks will help them do that, then it's not really my place to say. Now, I wish NIL wasn't this way. I wish NIL was more under control. But at the end of the day, these are the rules that we're living under right now. And John Ruiz believes that $400,000 of his money is worth it to go to Nigel Pack to help his team. Can't really blame him. By the way, it's the same in the coaching world too, right? We always hear that in, in co- well, you know, you, you could pay the coaches, whatever, but you can't pay the players. I mean, there are boosters that are writing huge checks for coaches that I don't think are worth it. There are boosters that are writing huge checks to get rid of coaches. I mean, there, there's, there's some booster somewhere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that is helping write a check to Ed Orgeron for $7 or $8 million a year this year to not coach LSU football. So that's the first reason why I have no issue with Tom Brady making this money. He's clearly worth it to the people that are paying it to him. You might not think he's worth it. I don't know if it's going to create that much more interest in Fox's games that they get that much more revenue. But if Fox is willing to pay him, then it's not for me to say that he's being overpaid. Two, you know who you got to overpay in this, not only in this business, but in this world? Somebody with options. And I feel like this has been the biggest talking point in the NFL outside of the actual on-the-field results for a while now. What is Tom Brady going to do after he retires? Because my goodness, greatest quarterback of all time, greatest winner in the history of the NFL, boy, oh boy, is that guy going to have options. And boy, oh boy, it ain't going to be cheap to get him. This is a guy that's made $300 million in his career. This is a guy that has, by all accounts, a successful, you know, nutritional, whatever business you want to call TB12. Seems to be doing well. People seem to be spending money on it. He's got a big social media following. He's got uh, his own production company. And so Tom Brady has plenty of options. If he wants to do TV, he can do TV. If he wants to do a weird Manning cast like Peyton Manning is, he can do a weird Manning Manning cast like Peyton Manning is. If he wants to go lay on a beach for 10 years, if he wants to get into ownership, if he wants to be a GM, if he wants to get into coaching, Tom Brady can do whatever you want. So to get Tom Brady to commit 10 years worth of his falls for 18 weeks a year and sometimes much more because Fox has a couple Super Bowls coming in there, you are going to have to overpay Tom Brady, don't you think? Speaking of which, that's another reason. 
You don't want them to hit the open market. That's the other thing that I couldn't stop thinking about. The reason that this was done in the manner with which it was done was the fact that if it gets out that, you know, Tom Brady might be interested in doing some broadcasting, oh my goodness, then you all of a sudden you get in a bidding war. Then all of a sudden Amazon gets involved. Amazon, remember, has those Thursday night games. Yeah, they signed Kirk Herbstreit, but guess what? They can fire Kirk Herbstreit in a second. It's Amazon. They're worth $10 billion. Yeah, I don't think they're worth 10. I think they're worth like $50 billion. They could write out Kirk Herbstreit's check in a minute, get rid of Tom, Kirk Herbstreit, bring in Tom Brady. Think NBC, I know they just, you know, they, they spent money on Drew Brees. You think they wouldn't push Drew Brees aside to get Tom Brady? You think CBS wouldn't have to have some tough conversations about Tony Romo if Tom Brady's available? And so to me, when I sit there and say, one, he's got options, like I said, and two, the last thing you want is for it to get out that he's potentially interested, and then all of a sudden, you get in a bidding war. Speaking of bidding war, you know the one network that I did not just mention? I mentioned CBS, I mentioned Amazon, I mentioned NBC. You know who I didn't mention? How about ESPN? And to me, this is the part nobody's talking about. ESPN, the reason that Tom Brady, the reason that the void is there is because Troy Aikman just left ESPN and their, Monday, their, their Sunday booth to go call Monday Night Football at ESPN. He left Fox for ESPN. I think, he said, I think I said he left ESPN, but he's going to ESPN. So Troy Aikman just left Fox to go to ESPN. Costs ESPN $18 million a year to get him. Then ESPN said, you know what? If we're going to have Troy Aikman, we've got to have a good play-by-play man alongside him. And so they went out and got Joe Buck, his partner for years at Fox, for $15.5 million a year. Now, one, I credit ESPN for that. Listen, I've criticized ESPN for a lot, but they have for years been trying to make that Monday night, Monday night booth a big deal. Hasn't felt very important since Mike Tirico and John Gruden probably five, six years ago. They've been trying a long time to get somebody worth watching into that booth. Now, how much we tune into games to watch broadcasters, that's a different conversation. But it certainly helps and it certainly makes the game feel big if you have big names in that booth. And so I give ESPN credit. And for people who don't know how all these contract works, and I don't claim to have all the details, but part of getting the biggest games and part of getting Super Bowls, which ESPN now has, is you have to invest back into the product. And so for years, my understanding was the NFL was hesitant to give ESPN Super Bowls or ABC ESPN Super Bowls because they sat there and said, you guys don't care about the product. We can't give you the biggest game and you have some, you know, whoever. And it's no disrespect, but Brian Greasy or Booger McFarland or Jason Witten, get some real people in there. So they spent, whatever, $34.5 million to get Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. Why do I bring it up? Well, it's because what I just said. They spent $34.5 million to get Troy Aikman and Joe Buck away. You don't think it's worth paying $37 million to get Tom Brady? Because you have $34 million that would have been spent on the other two. Now you get Tom Brady. Now, to be clear, you still got to pay the other guy that he's going to work with. That's, uh, that's uh, why am I blanking on his name? Kevin, uh, Kevin Burkhart. So you got to pay Kevin Burkhart. But I mean, how much are we talking about Kevin Burkhart? I have met Kevin Burkhart once or twice. Seems like a nice guy. What are we paying Kevin Burkhart? $1.5 million a year, $2 million a year? So for the price of Kevin Burkhart and Tom Brady, um, you know, it's like $5 million more than what you would have paid Joe Buck and Trey Aikman anyway. So people talk about, how can you spend $37 million on Tom Brady? Well, you're not really spending $37 million because you saved $34 million getting rid of Joe Buck and Trey Aikman. So now you put Tom Brady in your main booth with Kevin Burkhardt. Kevin Burkhardt doesn't go out, doesn't work out. You go out and get somebody else. But that's another reason. You lost, you you saved a bunch of money by not signing the other guys. So now you get to spend it on Tom Brady. And finally, this is the most important part that nobody's talking about. And this is the difference between the guy and girl on Twitter and somebody 
like myself that actually thinks this through. Do I think Tom Brady's worth $37 million a year? I don't know. But here's the bottom line. Did you see where this announcement came from? It didn't come from a press release. It didn't come from a report from ESPN or the New York Post or Fox Sports or this or that or The Athletic. It came from an earnings call for Fox, okay? Do we know what an earnings call is? It was Rupert Murdoch's son, the guy that owns Fox, announcing it to his shareholders. So the point of an earnings call is you have these big publicly traded companies like Fox, like Fox, like Amazon, like Google, like Netflix, whatever. And on these earnings calls, you got all your investors and you got to get them hyped up about, hey, you got all this money invested in this company. We got to get you excited about that. Well, what's going to get you more excited than having the son of the chairman or the chairman himself, Rupert Murdoch's son, get on there and say, guess what? Our biggest property here in the United States is the NFL and guess who we just signed? No, I'm not talking about this guy or that guy or Brian Greasy. I'm talking about Tom freaking Brady. We got Tom Brady to call the biggest games in the NFL, and I think that's an important part of this as well. According to all the reports, including from Andrew Marshan, he's not only going to be the face of Fox Sports for 10 years in that booth, he's going to be an ambassador for the company. When they have a big golf outing or when they have a big this or when they have a big whatever with the shareholders and the stakeholders and the people that are spending tens of millions of dollars on this company, no one's going to be there at the front shaking hands and kissing babies. It's going to be Tom Brady. And so to me, this makes perfect sense, and I totally get why Fox did it. And I am so, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm excited to see Tom Brady in the booth. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know how good he's going to be. And to be clear, yes, I would probably still be watching Cowboys Packers on a Sunday, whether it was Tom Brady, Troy Aikman, or somebody else. But I do think this matters. And when you really break it down, I don't think the $37 million was that crazy. Last thought on Tom Brady, and then we'll get to some college hoop stuff. Jim Calhoun, 80th birthday. Who's my top five coaches? So with Tom Brady... I was thinking this, outside of Michael Jordan, Tom Brady has to have like the second best just life, right? Like, like, like Michael Jordan's number one, six rings, undefeated in the finals, whatever. But what makes Michael Jordan so cool is he's just this cool like investor guy that makes so much money and nobody knows how much money he's making because he's not really in the spotlight. But then he shows up and you're like, oh my goodness, like this year, if you remember with Michael Jordan, the NBA 75th anniversary. All these guys are flying in from all over the world to be part of it, and there's all these guys that are current players, and da da da, and they're all shaking hands. And Michael Jordan's not there. And then he shows up at the last minute, but it was because he was at the Daytona 500 earlier that day, because he owns a racing team. Now, I don't know how much money you make off owning a, a NASCAR racing team, but he's probably making pretty good money. And so I was thinking about Michael Jordan, and then right behind him is Tom Brady in terms of the moves that he's made the chess pieces that are going on in his personal life that allow him to have a 20-year NFL career. It's like 22, 23 years at this point. He's going to play through his 45th birthday, and now he just signed for $275 million. $375 million. <laughs> My bad. Signed for $375 million. And so, you know, why that is, I don't know. I, I do tend to think that Tom Brady keeps kind of a pretty low profile off the field. He doesn't say anything controversial. In basketball, we had MJ who was like that. I think Steph Curry's kind of like that. Whatever it is, Tom Brady, $375 million to call games. This guy is living a charmed life. All right, this is what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. I do want to talk a little college hoops. Tuesday was Jim Calhoun's 80th birthday, former UConn head coach. I thought it'd be fun to give you my five best coaches in college basketball history. 
followed by the five most overrated coaches in college basketball history. I'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome in a new sponsor, Athletic Greens and athleticgreens.com. With one delicious scoop of AG1, that's Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. Quick side story. The founder of this company, they were experiencing gut health issues and were spending over $100 a day on vitamins and supplements. They knew there had to be a better way. That's Athletic Greens. For the cost of just $3 a day, you can get Athletic Greens. Here's the best part. It contains less than one gram of sugar with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting good. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash emerging. That's athleticgreens.com slash emerging for one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take over ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Thank you again for being our partner. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Thank you again to our partners, Athletic Greens, athleticgreens.com. AthleticGreens.com slash emerging if you want to go ahead and make your first purchase. Really good stuff. Really encourage you to check it out. We appreciate their partnership, AthleticGreens.com slash emerging. With that said, I do want to switch gears, and I do want to hit on some college hoops, and I want to kind of hit on it in an abstract way. 
And as I told you a minute ago, it's May. And the one good thing about May is that it does allow us to do things a little bit differently and to do things on this show that we wouldn't normally get to do. The Tom Brady stuff a minute ago. And on Tuesday, something else in the world of sports happened that I really believe is worth discussing, at least for this show. And that was that Jim Calhoun celebrated his 80th birthday, the former UConn head basketball coach. The reason I want to talk about it, I've talked about Jim Calhoun a million times, but Jim Calhoun, I would argue, is not only the reason that I am the college basketball fan that I am, but also the sports fan that I am. You could not grow up in the 1990s when I was growing up in Connecticut and not just be obsessed with UConn basketball in the same way that if you're growing up in Kansas right now, it's impossible not to be caught up in the Jayhawks or in Kentucky right now, impossible not to be caught up in the Wildcats. Or if you live in Alabama, unless you're a diehard Auburn fan, you obviously you're following Alabama football day by day by day by day by day. And so a big part of the reason that I am the fan that I am is because of UConn basketball. When I really started to understand sports and figure out what everything meant and this win means that and this tournament is this, that was when UConn was really starting to take off. 94-95 was really the first season that I really remember a little bit of. UConn makes an Elite Eight, loses to UCLA, the eventual national champion. Following year, the first year that I really followed it, and I knew the players and I knew the background, they make the Sweet 16. 98, they make the Elite Eight again. In 1999, they win the school's first national championship. So I'm forever indebted to Jim Calhoun. Love him, love his program. And I've often argued that I believe that he is the most underrated coach in the history of college basketball based on the stats that he put up conference championships, Final Fours, national championships, but then also based on where he did it and how he did it. He didn't go to a school that had a track record of four or five coaches before him that had all had success. UConn was a nice little regional program that really was at the bottom of the Big East when he got there, built them into a national power, and at the very least, I think he's the greatest program builder ever, taking the worst program arguably in the Big East, turning him into a three-time national champion. And so I'm using all of that as a setup to say this. On Tuesday, I started to have a conversation both <laughs> with myself, which sounds weird, but more importantly, I put it out on social media. I said, couldn't you argue that Jim Calhoun is the, th when you factor in everything, couldn't you argue that Jim Calhoun is the third greatest coach in the history of college basketball, behind only John Wooden and Coach K, when you factor in where he did it, how much he won, all that good stuff. And I was very surprised to see most people kind of agree with me. At the very least, they said he's underrated. Some said he's even better than Coach K, should be top three, should be top five for sure. And so what I wanted to do, again, because it's May and we can do some different stuff on this show, this is what I decided to do. I said, you know what? Screw it. Let's have some fun. What I wanted to do was put together my definitive list of the top five coaches in college basketball history. And the reason I want to do it is because it's like anything else. It's like the top five players in the NBA, the top five quarterbacks in the NFL. Everybody has kind of their different opinion. And what I want to do is put it all on paper and give you my definitive list of who I believed to be the five best coaches in college basketball. This is a concept based off of the fact that it is Jim Calhoun's 80th birthday part, the 80th birthday and I wanted to go ahead and celebrate. So let me get into my top five. Before I do, I'll give you some quick, quick criteria into what my thoughts were on, this, you know, on this, this segment and how I graded the top five. And I think it's relatively impossible to do this, right? Everybody's criteria is a little bit different, but, but this was my criteria in putting together my top five coaches in the history of college basketball. First of all, I tried to put aside the era in which stuff was done, okay? 
We all kind of understand that no one could do what John Wooden did in the 1960s and 70s in the modern college basketball era. Like, we all get that. We all get you can't win 10 championships in 12 years, but it shouldn't take away from the fact that he did do it in his era and that he still had to do it no matter how hard it was or how easy it was in that era. So I want to take away era. I wanted to try and balance regular season and tournament success. We all know the NCAA tournament is crazy. If a guy has a few less Final Fours than that guy, da-da-da-da, you know, I wanted to factor that in. And then most importantly, I wanted to factor in who they were and where they did it. Like I said, it's easy for somebody to take over. It's easier for somebody to take over Kansas or UCLA or Kentucky than it is at UConn or what Lute Olson did at Arizona or what Jerry Tarkanian did at UNLV where it had never been done before. So what I want to do, I want to go through my top five. Before we do, there were two guys that just missed the cut. I went through everything and two guys just missed the cut. Number seven is Dean Smith. And I think, you know, this was kind of why I wanted to do this list, right? Because if you just said greatest coaches ever, the first two or three names out of everybody's mouth, Coach K, John Wooden, Dean Smith, maybe Roy Williams, maybe Adolph Rupp. I have Dean Smith at number seven. I think if anything, he's kind of maybe a little bit overrated historically. Not that he's terrible. UNC fans are going to get all up in my mentions. Oh my God, you hate North Carolina. No, I'm just saying the guy coached forever two national championships, but the thing that if you, that, that's why you have to knock him a little bit. Everybody ahead of him on this list has more national championships, and Dean Smith being at North Carolina, the premier program in the sport for many of the years that he was there, did only, only quote-unquote take home two national championships. So that's why I think he's maybe a tiny bit overrated. If you ask most people, I think they'd say top two, top three all time, and I think he's more in that top five to seven range. What cannot be disputed, however, is the success that he had and the length with which that he did it over a period of time, which is just incredible. 17 ACC regular season titles, 13 ACC ACC tournament titles, and then right up until Coach K this year, he was tied for the most final fours of all time prior to Coach K this, this year with 11. So Coach K surpassed him, but he had 11 Final Fours. So I can't discredit what Dean Smith did. 11 Final Fours, 17 ACC regular season titles, 13 ACC tournament titles. Uh, I have him at number seven. Incredible career. The guys ahead of him, though, are just a little bit better. Number six, I'm actually going to kind of go in that same vein. I'm going to go with Bob Knight. And Bob Knight, first of all, I'm not an anti-Bob Knight guy by any stretch. A lot of people, oh, Bob Knight, he's this, he's that. If you are of a certain age, And even if you're my age or younger, you only know Bob Knight as the guy that was on ESPN yelling and screaming or the guy that you've seen throwing chairs or whatever. Do yourself a favor over the summer when you have a little bit of free time, go ahead and buy A Season on the Brink by John Feinstein was written. It was a season embedded with Indiana basketball in 1986, and it's going to show you a whole new side of Bob Knight. I mean, this guy was in that era of college basketball larger than life and just absolutely incredible, and he was like the revered, no question about it, best coach in the sport. Everybody respected him. Everybody feared him. He was coming off a a gold medal win in the Olympics, and so I have nothing but respect for Bob Knight, so this isn't like a teardown Bob Knight segment, Um, but you know, he's right on the outside of the top five for for a couple reasons. One, first of all, the, the numbers are incredible. Three national championships, five Final Fours, As I said, he led the U.S. to an Olympic gold in 1984 and 11 Big Ten regular season titles. Originally, I had him in the top five, but the more I looked at it, the more I do think you can knock him on one thing. I do think that by the tail end of his career, the game had kind of passed him by. The one thing that you'll notice about all the guys ahead of him, they were able to have success relatively late into their careers, 
where Bob Knight coached until 2008. His final Final Four was 1992. His final Big Ten title was 1993. His final Big Ten conference title or conference title in general was 1993. He obviously coached several years at Texas Tech. But I bring it up because his final 13 years as a head coach, zero Final Fours, zero National Championships, zero Elite Eights in his final 13 years, one Sweet 16, one second weekend in the NCAA tournament, zero conference championships. So no criticism of Bob Knight. It's no criticism of Bob Knight. Instead, it's the exact opposite. We're going to go ahead and give him credit. We're going to put him at number six. I think the fact that the back end of his career, he really just seemed to lose touch, not able to kind of have the same success, had three national championships over an 11-year span, but could not continue it over the tail end of his career. So let's get into the top five. And let's start with number five. Drum roll, please. This one was actually surprising, and this was the guy that I had outside the top five, and I replaced... Bob, I had Bob Knight in the top five, and I replaced this guy. And that person is, are you ready for this? It's Roy Williams. <laughs> that was a little dramatic, even for me. That was a little dramatic. So what I would say about Roy Williams is pretty straightforward. I think there's an easy argument to be made. Oh, Roy Williams, he's overrated, blah, blah, blah. And the knock and the reason that I had him out of the top five originally was because he only coached at two places, Kansas and North Carolina, which are unquestionably two of the top five jobs in college basketball. And that was the knock on him forever, is that if any coach coached at those two schools, they would win a lot of games. To which I would say, I don't think that's necessarily wrong where there were a lot of guys that could have had success if they started at 40 at one place and coached 30 years. But there's also Billy Gillespie. There's also Steve Lavin. There's also Ben Howland. There's also Matt Doherty. There's also literally everyone that's coached in Indiana since Bob Knight left. Maybe Mike F. and Woodson is the guy. But sit here and say, like, Roy Williams should be punished because he had a ton of success at two places where a lot of people have success. I don't think we can hold it against him. And the more that I looked at Roy Williams' resume, the more that I looked at, again, those countable stats, the unbelievable stats that he put up over the course of his career, I was like, there's no way I can justify putting Bob Knight ahead of him or even Dean Smith ahead of him. First of all, three national championships that's tied for the fourth most all time, alongside Bob Knight, alongside Jim Calhoun. On top of that, he also had, and this is incredible, he had 18 regular season conference titles, nine in the Big 12 slash Big 8. That's how long ago Roy Williams started. He coached the Big 8 before it became the Big 12, and then nine more conference titles after he got to North Carolina for a total of 18 regular season titles in the Big 12, Big 8, and ACC. On top of that, and I think this is important, by the way, nine Final Fours, and that was the big knock on Roy Williams forever. Oh, he can't win the big one. He can't win the big one. He can't win the big one. Get into the Final Four. Well, as it turns out, from 2005 to 2017, he wins three national titles. So he's kind of the reverse Bob Knight. Took him forever to get that first one. And then his final, I guess it was 17 years, wins three national titles. Not bad at all. What I would also say about Roy Williams is this. He had success late into, into his career. Now, I know when he retired last year, he said there's a better person for the job and blah, blah, blah. And we'll see what happens with Hubert Davis. But what I would say about Roy Williams, you look at his final couple years, Guy was pretty much on top of his game. Goes to a national title game in 2016, is a play away from potentially winning that one. That was the one where Villanova hit the shot at the buzzer. 2017, he gets back, does win a national title over Gonzaga. 2019, he wins the ACC regular season title, the year that Zion was at Duke. Zion gets hurt. Roy Williams in North Carolina win an ACC regular season title. So to me, that is why I give Roy Williams credit because I sit there and say, you know what? 
That is a guy that basically was able to um, was basically able to uh, you know have success late into his career. So Roy Williams, number five. I'm already going long. Number four. Drum roll, please. Do not be a homer. I'm gonna go Jim Calhoun, UConn. And I know some of you still say, oh, he's a homer, always this, always that. Well, first of all, I do think where you win titles matter. So first of all, more national championships from Jim Calhoun than Dean Smith, than Jim Beheim, than John Thompson, than Lute Olson, than Jerry Tarkanian, all these guys that routinely get mentioned ahead of Jim Calhoun, Rick Patino, another one, Tom Izzo, Bill Self, for that matter, right now, Jay Wright. Jim Calhoun has three. Those guys have two. Those guys have one. Those guys have zero. And so to me, I don't know how Jim Calhoun can't be at number four, especially when you consider where he did it. I do think this matters. Starts out at UConn in the Big East. UConn was a nice regional program before he got there. They were not a national power. They were not a program that was going to Elite Eights and Sweet Sixteens and Final Fours. As a matter of fact, they were the worst team in the Big East when he got there. And how about this? He did What he did was so impressive because it was in the toughest conference in college basketball at the time. So one th- and this is not a disrespect that's going to sound like it. It's one thing for Mark Few to build Gonzaga into a program that wins its conference every year in a, in a conference that's a one-to-two-bid league. Jim Calhoun entered the Big East at the toughest time in the conference's history when he got there. His first year, there were five Hall of Fame coaches. Luke Arnaseca at St. John's, Rolly Massimino at Villanova, Rick Pitino was in his first year at Providence, um... John Thompson at Georgetown and Jim Beheim at Syracuse. That's five Hall of Fame coaches when he gets there. P.J. Carlissimo, by the way, was at Seton Hall. He would go to a Final Four national championship game a year later, two years later. And so I bring it up because this guy comes in to the toughest conference in college basketball and builds a power, builds a monster that ultimately ends up with three national championships and four Final Fours. On top of that, Jim Calhoun, and he's talked about it on this show. He's a friend of the Aaron Torres pod. This was a guy that took so much pride in winning the conference. Ten Big East regular season titles again in what was the toughest conference in college basketball at the time. Seven Big East tournament titles. And what I would say is a lot like Roy Williams. He had success late in his career. Took him a while to get that first one. But from 99 until he stepped away at UConn in 2013, three national titles, four Final Fours in his final five years, two Final Fours and a national title. And it's worth noting, like I'm not going to totally discredit Kevin Ollie here. But Kevin Ali basically won a national title with his players in 2014. Three national titles, four Final Fours for Jim Calhoun, plus his, basically a roster that he almost entirely put together wins the title in 2014. Number three. And this one might be a little bit controversial. And I was going to put him at number four, put Calhoun at number three. I am going to put Adolph Rupp at number three. Now, he's the one that kind of transcends so many eras that it's kind of hard to put into perspective what he did and how he did it because there's the NIT and there's the NCAA tournament and there's this and there's that. This was a stat that jumped out to me about Adolph Rupp. 27 SEC titles. 27! And I'm not sitting here saying I'm a SEC basketball historian. I can tell you that in 1954, how good the conference was or whatever. 27 SEC titles. On top of that, four national championships, third most all-time behind Wooden and Coach K. I know that there was this stuff about race and this and that. I've said it on this show a couple times. First of all, you, I'm, I don't want to dismiss what he is accused of in his era. But what I would also say is this. There are a lot of people that have played for him and that knew him that say that simply what has been reported about him throughout history was not true. Uh, he did sign African-American players late in his career. 
Um, so it's not, I'm not saying he's a perfect human being, but when you look at the on-the-court results, when you look at uh, you know, the, the, what, what happened you know, just between the white lines, this was a guy that had so much success, 27 SEC championships, four, uh, four national championships, and also on top of that, six Final Fours. Uh, again, there's some stuff in his personal life that's not great. There's some stuff in his professional life that's not great. But again, he signed African-American players. The first African-American player that ever played for him, Thomas Paine, said that some of the stuff that's reported about him isn't true. I'm going to take that over what some guy on Twitter or Facebook says about him. But this guy, win-loss results were incredible. What's interesting about him, too, he retired at the age of 70. And he did it, um, and he did it because by law, they had to, he had to step away at that particular moment in time. By law, he had to step away at the age of 70 years old, and he was having a ton of success when he was at, even at his extended age, three elite eights in his final five years. As I said, four national championships, uh, six final fours, eight off rup is number three. Number two is our old buddy Coach K. And I know a lot of people want me to pull him down the list with Coach K, but first of all, the, again, to use a, a term that I just made up, the countable statistics, I mean, it's incredible. Most Final Fours ever for Coach K, which is 12, 12 including this year. Um, on top of that, five national championships, which is second most all-time behind John Wooden. And what really stands out to me about is two things with Coach K, and they're, they're kind of intertwined. One is his longevity, okay? So this, I was thinking about this. So uh, about two months ago, it was the beginning of March. If you remember, I missed an episode because I came down with a death flu. Couldn't get out of bed for three days. Well, in my haze of having the flu, I was trying to drink some Gatorade and survive. I didn't have COVID, by the way. I tested negative three times. But um, in the process of, of trying to get better, there was one day I'm sitting there, and on ESPNU, I think it was, they're playing the 2001 National Championship game between Duke and Arizona on ESPNU. And I'm sitting there watching it, and something struck me. Coach K started his career at Duke in 1980 plays for a national championship in 2001, and I am old enough to remember that game. And I remember watching that game being like, man, this Coach K guy's been around forever. I can't even remember life without Coach K because Coach K had been at Duke since before I was born. And it felt like at that moment he had been at Duke forever, 21 years at that time. For some comparison, Coach John Calipari feels like he's been at Kentucky for a while. John Calipari is going into his 14th year. So it would take seven more years to get to Coach K in 2001, and that was the halfway point in his career. 21 years at that point, and then he coached another 21 years, and he had a team this year that was good enough to win it all, and I know you can argue, well, you know, I mean, he underachieved all those one and dones, blah, 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 this and that, and I don't know that I even necessarily disagree with that, but what I would also say, while it's easy for me to sit here and say that he underachieved late in his career with all that talent, like he did make a bunch of Final Fours late, he did make uh, when, when we're looking at the final few years of his career, he made a Final Four in his last year with a team good enough to win it. He made an Elite Eight with Zion. He made an Elite Eight with Marvin Bagley. He won the national title in 2015. And so I'm sitting there saying, like, we can criticize this guy because he didn't win a ton at the end with the best teams in college basketball. But, I mean, when you're talking about four Elite Eights from 2012, 2015 to 2022, it's hard for me to criticize him. So J Coach K comes in at number two. And then number one, I'll just say this. It's John Wooden. And listen, I, I understand that when you look at John Wooden and you look at some of the stats that, that he put up, you're just like, come on now. 
that uh, I mean, that could never happen in the modern era and blah, 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 and this and that. And I understand why that argument would be made. What I would also say is, when you look, first of all, when you look at those stats, it's almost like looking at like Wilt Chamberlain's stats from his days in the NBA, right? Like you just look at Wilt Chamberlain's stats and you're just like, oh my, that guy averaged like 50 points a game in one season and he averaged like 50 and 20 the next year and he averaged like 42 and 12 and then one year he led the, and like the stats are so crazy that you like, you're like, how is this even possible? And that's kind of the deal with John Wooden. I'm not saying that in this era he would win 10 of 12. I get all that. I get it was a different world. But the guy did win 10 national championships in 12 years, which is absolutely unbelievable. It was 10 in his final 12 years, so that makes it even more impressive is that he went out at the top of his game, won a national championship in his final season, 15 Pac, whatever it was at the time. It's Pac-12 now. I think it was Pac-8 at the time. Um, and, you know, it's just, I mean, you just look at the, the, the numbers. It's unbelievable. 15 conference championships, 10 national championships, uh, three undefeated seasons, two back-to-back undefeated seasons, and I don't care how much better his players were than everybody else. You can't coach ball. Your team's not going 30-0 and every year. And so to me, John Wooden's number one. I get that it's a different era. I get that nobody could do what, you know, what he has done. Um, but John Wooden, to me, is number one. He comes in at number one on my list. So that is my top five coaches in the history of college basketball, which really turned into a list of top seven. Uh, Number seven is Dean Smith. Number six is Bobby Knight. Number five is Roy Williams. Number four is Jim Calhoun. Number three is Adolph Rupp. Number two is Coach K. And number one is John Wooden. So what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I was going to do my ranking of the five most overrated coaches. One of our listeners, Wade Hodges, chimed in with that one. But I'll go ahead and save it. The top five coaches of all time, that one went a little bit long. And so instead, what I'm going to do is come back. I'll answer some of your questions. I did a little Q&A on Twitter. You guys sent in some questions. I will save the top five most overrated coaches for Friday's show. But I'm going to come back. We'll do the top five most overrated coaches next episode. Next time, we'll come back now. We'll do a little bit on uh, some of your questions, some Mike Leach stuff, all sorts of good stuff. We'll be right All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Final segment of the show, so good to be back. Uh, Do want to wrap, you know, I I was going to do the top five most overrated coaches in college basketball for this final segment, but, you know, the the last segment went a little bit long, and I did want to do something that I've been telling you guys and girls that I was going to do for a while, and that's a little Q&A, and I've been telling you for weeks, go ahead, submit your questions, Aaron Torres, podcastquestions at gmail.com, Go ahead and submit them there, or of course, DM me at Aaron underscore Taurus, and eventually I'll answer them. And so today, as I said, it's a little bit of a slower kind of week in the news. This felt like a good time to get to some of them, uh, and in addition to the ones that, that you guys sent me via email, I also took some questions online, and I put out a social media post on Tuesday afternoon, and I basically just said this. I said, look, you guys can ask me anything. I want this to be fun. My only stipulations are pretty straightforward. Don't ask me anything that is going to end with me either getting arrested or getting divorced, and we're good to go. In other words, I don't want any questions about my my personal life when I was single. I don't want any questions, uh, you know, about something that law enforcement may be interested in, although, to be honest, I'm kind of a boring guy at night. Uh, But with that said, you guys and girls did submit a couple questions, and I do encourage you to continue to submit them throughout the summer, and we'll get to them over these coming weeks and months. It can be basketball-related, it can be NCAA-related, it can be pro-related, football, uh, you know, Vegas trips, like whatever you want, I'll, I'm happy to answer it. 
AaronTorresPodcastQuestions at gmail.com or DM me at Aaron underscore Torres. So let's get to some of the questions that you guys and girls submitted. The first one came from D 7 on Twitter. Good question from Joe. He says, will Kirby and Saban having their names attached to NIL changes be bad for their recruiting? Seems it could be played as they don't want players to get good deals. Again, D 7 on Twitter. Great question. And I think what we have to do is kind of separate a couple different things here. So I do think there are certain NIL things that will be definitely held against coaches. So for example... Last week, John Calipari comes out and says, we do not take, we don't negotiate with NIL. We do not take NIL demands when we're recruiting you. So if, you, if you're going to come in and throw, you know, say, I want X, Y, and Z as part of my NIL demands, don't even bother calling us. We're not interested. Now, to me, I understand where the players are coming from. They all have agents. And I did think publicly that didn't look good for John Calipari. Um, you know, to be fair, the way that the Kentucky state law is written, it is illegal for him to actually, um, you know, use kind of NIL as an enticement to get players. So I get where he was coming from. I didn't know that he needed to go public with it, and I did think it would be held against him. I don't necessarily know, though, that what Kirby Smart and what Nick Saban and, frankly, what Dabo Sweeney have done, and, frankly, it's not just those guys. It's Kirby, it's Nick Saban, it's Dabo Sweeney, but it's also Lane Kiffin. It's also Jimbo Fisher. It's also most of the biggest names in college football that have come out and asked for NIL reform. So I don't believe it will be held against them because I don't see Nick Saban or Kirby Smart as being anti-NIL. To be clear, I don't see John Calipari as anti-NIL as well, but I certainly don't see Nick Saban and Kirby Smart as anti-NIL. They just want rules that are a little bit more universal, a little bit more enforceable, so that Again, as a hypothetical, Texas is not playing by a different set of rules than USC is. USC is not playing by a different set of rules that Alabama is. Alabama is not playing by a different set of rules that Tennessee is. I don't believe that will be held against them, and certainly not those two specifically. Nick Saban, of course, has been very vocal about the NIL benefits of Alabama. Never forget, it was about a year ago now that he came out and said, uh, you know, Bryce Young is going to earn close to seven figures or a little over seven figures before he ever plays a down in college football. So I don't believe it will be held against him. Now, somebody like John Calipari that just comes out and says very specifically, if you have demands, we are not going to negotiate with you. I thought that was a bad look, even if I understood it. I thought he should have kept that behind closed doors. But regardless, I don't think it's going to be held against Saban and Kirby Smart. Let's keep it going. Second question from Craig. He chimed in via DM. I won't use his last name. I don't know if he wants it out there. He said, did you see the Mike Leach tweet about college football playoff expansion the other day? What'd you make of it? Okay, so for those of you who didn't see it, uh, this all stemmed from the Kentucky Derby. And I'm not a horse racing guy. I know many of you are in Kentucky. Uh, you've been to Churchill Downs. I'm not really a horse. I, I like watching I, you know, I'll throw it on a couple bucks if I'm in a sports book or whatever, but I'm not a huge horse racing guy. But the 80 to 1 long shot wins the Kentucky Derby, the biggest long shot in the history of the race. And then, of course, what happens? Mike Leach, in typical Mike Leach fashion, runs to Twitter, and this is what he says He says, That horse winning the Kentucky Derby today is a good example of why an expanded playoff is needed in college football. That horse hadn't won all the races leading up to it, but it got its chance, and that's what happened. And so, what Mike Leach is basically saying is, go ahead, let's expand this playoff to 16 teams, 32 teams, 64 teams, and you just never know what is going to happen. 
Mike Leach, for people who don't know, has been very vocal about wanting, like he wants the crazy expanded version, the 32 teams, the 64 teams, as I just said, whatever. And I think most of you know where I stand. I think we're fine at four. Uh, I don't want to let teams in just for the sake of letting teams in. I want to see a USC, a Miami, a, a Michigan, a Penn State build programs that are good enough to beat Ohio State, beat uh, Alabama, beat Clemson, not just let them in for the sake of letting them in. What I did find interesting, though, is I, I think if you just kind of break down Mike Leach's kind of conversation, I, if you break down the tweet, I don't think he really says what both what the public thinks that he was saying and what he thought that he was saying. That's why I thought it was interesting. That's why I thought it was a good question. And I wanted to include it here because I think what everybody's sit, sitting there saying is, well, Mike Leach is saying that a long shot won the, the Kentucky Derby, so a long shot could win the college football playoff. And to be fair, fair, I think that was what Mike Leach was thinking, although I don't think that he put a ton of thought into the tweet before he sent it out. What I find interesting, though, is if you break it down, that's not actually what Mike Leach is asking for. Because at the end of the day, yes, the horse was a long shot, but he only had to win one race to be the Kentucky Derby champion. He didn't have to win one race to get to the next race, 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 to, the next race, to then be crowned champion. So a lot of people perceived it, and I think Mike Leach intended it to be, we need to expand this playoff. What Mike Leach was actually asking for, you know what he was actually asking for? He was actually asking for a modified BCS. Because in a modified BCS, what he's basically saying is, the long shot deserves a chance at a championship. What he's basically asking for is, instead of the BCS giving us Alabama-Notre Dame every year, one versus two, it needs to give us Alabama versus some small school, Alabama versus Boise State, Alabama versus Cincinnati, Alabama versus Central Florida. Because the horse race, all he had to do was win one race against the big boys, and he was the Kentucky Derby champ. He didn't have to win one race and then go from here to here to here to here to here. And so when I look at it, what Mike Leach is actually asking for is a modified BCS. I don't think he's, I think he intended it to be that he's asking for an expanded college football playoff. But if you actually break it down, what he's really actually asking for is a new version of the BCS where the small school gets a shot. Let's keep it going. Uh, my, my jerk friend, Ryan Fowler, um, hosts on Tide 100.9. He's a radio host in Tuscaloosa. He said, do you think Auburn will be bowl eligible this year? Thanks in advance. Yes, Ryan, you're a jerk. Auburn will be bowl eligible. I feel bad for Brian Harson. Everything that went down with that program over the, the last you know three months of the season where the, where the school tried to run him off, I give him credit. He stood his ground. His family stood his ground. He'll be back, but we all know that he's got to win. I would say, though, the guys that are still on campus, they very clearly believe in him. They very clearly believe in his vision, and it'll be interesting to see if he wins enough to get the boosters off of his back and continue to have success. Uh, next question, C.D. Browning says, this is C.D. Browning on Twitter, who would your next NCAA president be and why? Great question. And to me, there's only one name. Now, I don't think that he would take it, but the only name for me is Greg Sankey. Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, is already the most powerful man in all of college sports. We saw that during COVID. When the NCAA kind of stood back, the NCAA let all the conferences make their own decisions, and the Big Ten canceled and the Pac-12 canceled, and Greg Sankey led the group that said, you know what, we're going to try to figure out a way. We don't have all the answers. We might ultimately have to cancel games. We might have to cancel the season but we're at least going to try. And I believe Greg Sankey is the reason that we had a college football season in 2020, which of course in turn turned into a college basketball season, all the winter sports into the spring. Without Greg Sankey, I'm not sure that that gets done. So to me, I believe Greg Sankey is already the most powerful man in college sports, and I believe he's the best leader in college sports, and that's why I would hire him 
as the next president of the NCAA because he's a visionary, because he's fearless, because he's a real leader, because when there's tough problems to be answered, he is the one that attempts to come up with an answer. And he doesn't always get the perfect answer, but darn it, he tries and he doesn't cower in the corner like Mark Emmert. Now, of course, the question becomes, why would Greg Sankey ever take that job? Because right now he's more powerful than the president of the NCAA. He runs the most powerful conference in college football. You know, I believe that by the time he's done, I really truly believe this, assuming that he stays as SEC commissioner, I think he's going to try to break off, maybe create that college football super league that everybody's talking about. I don't know exactly how it goes down and what it looks like, but to me, I was talking to somebody that's pretty high up there in the college football world, and he said, look, Greg Sankey, he got a taste of how much power that he has And I don't think he's relinquishing it anytime soon. First seen with all the stuff with COVID, then with Texas, Oklahoma, and we'll see what happens going forward. With that said, though, really quick before we move on to the final question, I do think it's worth noting. Money talks, baby. Money freaking talks. And to me, this is what I would do if I was in charge of picking the next NCAA president. I would throw the Brian Kelly contract at Greg Sankey. I would throw the Lincoln Riley contract to USC at Greg Sankey. I would throw the contract that I talked about on this show from the Dallas Cowboys to Nick Saban to Greg Sankey. If you remember, Dallas Cowboys lose that weird playoff game. I say, if I was Jerry Jones, I'd just blow up the model. Pay Nick Saban $50 million a year for three years. You're going to win a Super Bowl with the talent that you have on that roster. Never going to win it with Mike McCarthy. Go get Nick Saban. Well, that's what I would do with Greg Sankey. Greg Sankey's going to say no if you offer him the job because Greg Sankey is the most powerful man in college sports and probably has the best job in college sports as commissioner of the SEC. But there's a certain dollar amount where Greg Sankey ain't say, saying no to that NCAA job. Is it, uh, you know, the Brian Kelly 10-year, $100 million or whatever, give or take Brian Kelly made? I don't know. Is it, you know, 10 years, $150 million? I, I'm just throwing out numbers, but the NCAA makes money hand over fist, and the NCAA is only going to make more money if they put Greg Sankey in charge. So that is who I would hire as NCA president. If he said no, I'd just keep adding zeros to that check until he said yes. After that, it gets a little bit more dicey. Um, but I do think whoever is the next president, guy or girl, whatever, he or she needs to be a leader, a visionary, fearless, because it's a crazy changing time in college sports. Final question. Back to Kentucky. Josh, again, sent this via DM. I won't use his last name out of respect to him. But he says, what is the future of college basketball recruiting for Kentucky? Are players ranked 1 through 10 coming to Kentucky consistently, coming to college consistently? If not, is there a way to create a culture of retention like Kansas and Villanova? That's a great question. At some point, I may expand that out to a YouTube video because that's a very good question from Josh. Um, So to, to, to answer the back end of that question first, can you build a culture of retention like Kansas or Villanova? It's a great question. And unfortunately for Kentucky, I do kind of think that the answer is probably no. Now, I will say in defense of John Calipari, it's going to be harder for anybody to have a culture of contention. I think that's a big uh, a te- culture of retention. I think that's a big reason Jay Wright got out. It's why I wonder if Tony Bennett over the next 10 years is going to be anything like Tony Bennett in the last 10 years. I wonder how long Tom Izzo has. He just I don't, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that wants to do this. All these guys that talk about culture and accountability and, you know, that, that era... I don't want to say it's over, but it's different. So one, I don't know who, anyone that can cr- really create true true retention. But at the same time, I do think it's going to be hard at Kentucky. And I'll give you an interesting example. So remember about three, four months ago or so, 
I was reading an article about the University of Arizona basketball program. And it was about this year, number one seed, all that good stuff. And in the, in the, the, the article, they, were, they talked to Sean Miller, who, of course, was the head coach that got fired a year ago. Now he's at Xavier, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast. And Sean Miller talked about how once Arizona became known as a one-and-done school, it was hard to get players and convince them to stay two, three years. So he would go into a recruiting meeting saying, here's the vision for the next two, three, four years. This was all in an article, by the way. This isn't something that I've talked to Sean about myself, but it was in an article and he said, you know, I had parents literally telling me, you don't go to Arizona to go to school for three years. I'm trying to be one and done and get out. And so I think it's going to be hard for Kentucky now that they're known as the one and done school to keep kids in the program for two, three, four years. Now, I know they just got the commitment from the kid from Pennsylvania whose, whose dad played for Kentucky, and I think those are the right kinds of players to target. He's going to come. He might not play at all. He might redshirt, but he's coming in knowing exactly what his role is and that it's a two- or three-year process. Same with Lance Ware, same with Jacob Toppin, who did come in as a transfer, but knew he wasn't going to be in and out in one year. I just think it's going to be really hard, and for me, if I was John Calipari, I would do what I've been saying on this podcast for weeks. If you can go get the absolute best high school players, go get them. Um, And Kentucky has gotten them. Shaden Sharp, the number one player in the class of 2022, before he reclassified, committed to Kentucky. Cason Wallace is a guy that's in everybody's top five, top ten by the end of the year. He's going to Kentucky. And so, I mean, if Shane Sharp just stays, you're talking about two of the top 10 recruits in every recruiting service in the country. So it's not as though John Calipari's recruiting has completely fallen off. But to me, where you get in trouble is when you get that next tier of guys, that, that tier from about number 10 on, that just aren't those difference makers that are going to step into college and be an X factor right away. Every year, there's two, three, four, Paulo Bancaros, Cade Cunningham's, Evan Mobley's, Jalen Suggs's, uh, Jabari Smith's. And if you don't get those guys, you get stuck with that next group that thinks they're those guys that just doesn't have the same impact. And I think that's been Kentucky's problem the last three, four, five years. And so to me, the answer has been, and I've talked about it on this show, the answer has been pretty straightforward. It's go out, get the best of the best if you can, and then if not, backfill through the transfer portal. Now, I've talked about transfer recruiting. Not every player is going to be the perfect fit for every school. But at the same time, you are Kentucky, and there are always going to be players interested, as we've seen through the years. Uh, It happened uh, this year with Kellen Grady and Oscar Shibwe. It happened this year with, um, you know, this this offseason Antonio Reeves commits. C.J. Frederick wanted to come. I think there were other guys that if Calipari, you know, the NIL, we're going to talk about all that. You know, we just talked about that a minute ago. Um, There's plenty of guys that want to come is what I'm trying to say. This year, they didn't really have a bunch of open slots, and so you kind of back off with the recruiting. But to me, that is the plan for Kentucky going forward. You have to go get the best of the best in high school. And if those three, four, five guys, one or two of them might choose you, two, three, four of them might choose somewhere else, then you backfill through the portal. I just think getting a, you know, an all-conference player from the A-10 or the Mountain West or the Pac-12 those guys are going to be better for you in college basketball than a freshman that's the 22nd best player in his class or the 13th best player in his class or the 17th best player in his class. You get the point. All right, with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. What a show. Tom Brady to Jim Calhoun to I don't even know what. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. 
Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I will be back on Friday. As I said off the top, I hope everybody had a great Mother's Day. But like I said, I'll be back. Looking forward to chatting with you guys. Hope everybody has a great, 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 great Wednesday, Thursday. I'll be back on Friday. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.